Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to another episode of Bleach Fest. Hello. Today, we're going to talk about horrifying, deadly pandemics. But first, how are you? How have you been? Oh, I'm great. i uh having a good time. I just turned 25. Mm. I uh, am an adult. <laughs> well, you've been an adult for seven years now. Yeah, but it it hits different when you when you turn twenty five. I feel when you're no longer a young twenty, a young adult. Yeah. You're no longer. I'm a, not. I'm not in my a early young twenties. Tw- I'm not in my early twenties anymore. And you know what? It feels great. <laughs> the forced smile, dear <laughs> listener. The forced smile. No. The effort that goes into it. No, listen. Okay, I had a little bit of anxiety about it, but at the same time. I feel like every person has an age that fits them just right. Mm-hmm. 63. I, f- I think mine is like 35, you know? 35? Yeah, 35. Like, when you have your life together, you got money, you don't have anxiety anymore. Anxiety gone. Mm, we, I'm, I'm very confident that a lot of our 35-year-old listeners will tell you, but that's not how it works. Okay, yeah, sure. But when you stop being 20, I think you... or in You, your you 20s, get a lot of money and you're, they cure no, you of your mental illness. No, stop. Stop. That's not what I mean. I just feel like when you, when you stop being in your 20s, you start caring less about what people think and all that stuff. You, stop, you, you sort of... You get a renewed confidence in yourself and your life and your accomplishments. And I'm really hyped for that. And you were basing this on... Reddit. (laughs) Reddit told me. Famously the most accurate source of of news. Let a girl dream. I will. Thanks. How are you? I'm okay. I have stress at work on my YouTube channel. But it's... What's your YouTube channel? It's my name. It's Mia Mulder. I don't do medical history there. What do you do? God knows. This is not a promo show. I'll do my thing in the end. I'm sorry for trying to help you out okay well today we're going to talk about the spanish (laughs) flu speaking of like horrifying pandemics of last year and also this year it is a new year after all it is 2021 we're still in horrifying deadly pandemic Mm -hmm. and so it's only appropriate that we talk about another horrifying deadly pandemic Mm -hmm. the the spanish flu as it is commonly known or incorrectly or incorrectly or as it should be known the 1918 flu influenza pandemic. Yes, correct. But Spanish flu is not really the correct term for it, but we might use it for simplicity because saying 1918 influenza, 19, yeah. it, it's, it's, it doesn't really have the same ring to it. Um, so and, and like the Spanish it flu. It just doesn't roll off the tongue. It doesn't roll off the tongue. And also, the Spanish flu is what people know it as. Yeah. It's not correct. Mm. We're going to talk about a little bit about that soon. But it is. It is the name, unfortunately. Mm, it's been... In it, common parlance. Mm-hmm. It's been etched in history, and us calling it the 1918th flu is not going to change anything, so... Yet. Once, once, we, once we force this podcast into the ears of every single person on Earth, and it will happen to your listener, believe me, maybe we can do something about that. Mm-hmm. But for now, we cannot. Um, 
So okay. the Spanish flu, though, let's yeah. let's talk about it. What is the Spanish flu? Well, uh, it was a global pandemic, mm-hmm. and it is it was one of the worst pandemics in modern history. Mm-hmm. If we talk about pandemics that we, as a modern society, will remember in terms of like news articles, mm-hmm. photographs, things of that nature, mm-hmm. things that seem close to us. It's not like the Justinian plague, which is so far distant to us that we have a hard time understanding really what it is. With the Black Death, we're going to make an episode about it, but we're not going to talk about that right Stop now. Stop telling everyone our plans. <laughs> I it's, keep it. It's called giving them something. They'll hunger for it. They they want it so much more. I promise you, they love you it. You gotta keep the mystery alive. Add us on Twitter if you want the Justinian plague episode. Um, However, this pa- this plague, this pandemic, this influenza pandemic, lasted from February of nineteen eighteen yes. to summer of nineteen twenty. Right? April 1920. April 1920. It was caused by the H1N1 influenza type A virus. And it... um, It infected 500 million people. Sure did. Which was a third of the world's population at the time. Yeah. And it killed an estimate 50 million people. It consisted of four successive waves, the second of which was the worst. Something we can definitely not relate to. In our current year, in the current pandemic. And it disproportionately affected the very young, the very old, but also young adults. Which is a characteristic of the virus um, that is highly unusual. Mm. And also very bad, as we will hear, for the so-called economy. <laughs> but Economy? Economy. What's the, that? <laughs> it's the most important part of society. The people dying, that's not that important. But as we know from the current pandemic, the schools and the markets must stay open, lest the line go down. Line must always go up. Remember that. But let's talk about the origins, mm-hmm. shall we? Let's talk about the origins. This flu, this pandemic, happens in the year 1918, during which time there is um, uh, some bad stuff happening in the world outside of medical history. It is the so-called Great War, the World War, the first one, and it takes place primarily in Europe, because Europe controls most of the world and they decided to call it the World War anyway. The pandemic primarily spread through this World War. From soldiers coming into Europe on the Western Front primarily, but also some on the Eastern, and getting infected, and then going back to their home countries of America, of South America, Asia, uh, some parts of Africa, although not that much, uh, taking the virus with them and spreading it amongst their own communities, which is bad. But where did it come from originally to this to this war zone? There are three theories as to where this virus may have originated. You may think it's Spain, but it's not, even though it is in Western Europe. The three theories state that one of them, one of the origins, and there is evidence for all of these theories, so we don't actually know which one is the true one. One of them says that it comes from the grand old, do you know? America. America. (laughs) It's coming from Kansas. The corn state, I think. I think America has like 14 corn states. I think they do corn, yeah. I think it's, it's big. It's big on corn. It's big on corn. So it may have come from there. The theory is that it comes from American cattle farmers, or swine farmers, or something to do with animals, farmers generally, and that the virus may have mutated from there. If you're from Kansas, please don't get mad at us. 
if you're from Kansas and it's not a corn state, tell us what it is known for, please. We don't know. Is Kansas, maybe Kansas is the one with the big giant ball of twine. I think, I'm getting a bit, I, I think hay. When I think Kansas, I think hay. If you're from Kansas, can you tell, can you let us know on Twitter what our, what your state is known for? Is it cows? I don't know. Sunflower state. Welcome Sunflower. to Kansas, nicknamed the Sunflower state, but also known as the Jayhawk state. Kansas, you're a great state. However, the Spanish flu may have come from farmers in your area. Viruses in your area are looking to infect. <laughs> Click now. Um, there is some evidence for this, because when they found evidence for the Spanish flu, and they found diagnostic proof that this is a disease and that they could name it, that's where they found it. The very first cases that they were like, this is for sure this flu virus thing, they found it in Kansas. And there is actually some evidence for it having a North American origin, maybe not specifically Kansas, but maybe North America. And the theory goes that uh, individuals from Kansas or from elsewhere in North America traveled to uh, the the seafront, the sea cities, the docks, and it may have spread to people who were going to Western Europe to... To fight in the war. To fight in the war. Or to observe the war. A lot of people just went to look at it for some reason. That's one theory. There is another theory that it may have come from China. China. Which I'm sure that one American president is jubilant to hear if they're listening to this podcast. In which, in which case... Get them. Get <laughs> we have to bleep that. They can, they can f*** right off. Banned. Hope, hope you get impeached. As, as At the time of recording, they, they are still presidents. <laughs> unfortunately. However, it, the theory states that the virus may have mutated in China and spread to the US where it mutated and then made its way to port cities and then to the Western Front, where it then it exploded and spread. And both of these theories kind of hinge on America, so it's, America may, ha may have had something to do with it. The third theory, though, is the one that has more theoretical backing. The last theory says that the virus may have come from Europe in an army hospital on the Western Front, already there. Which I think makes sense, considering army hospitals, especially during the First World War, were complete cesspools and perfect breeding grounds for various types of diseases. Nasty, nasty germs. There's some evidence that shows deaths from flu-like symptoms as early as 1916, so two years before the pandemic really broke out, killing a lot of soldiers. And some studies show that the virus may have been circulating around Europe, even, for a long time, especially among soldiers, uh, for months, maybe even years before 1916. Hmm. So it's the this uh, this pandemic, this virus may have been in Europe a long time before it really broke out in a pandemic style. And if there's anything we've learned from COVID, it is that it uh, you it can it can it can hang around for a little time in some areas, and then it can spread like wildfire. But the contention is we simply do not know where it came from. But what we do know is that once it really became once it became widespread in the trenches of World War One and it started infecting returning soldiers, that's when the pandemic of nineteen eighteen really began in earnest.
So, as we mentioned before, the H1N1 virus was the deadliest virus of the 20th century, killing an estimate of 50 million people worldwide. Uh, one thing that was really unusual about the virus was that it caused a high death rate among adults of ages between 15 to 34, which is really uncommon with viruses. Like, usually mm. viruses um, mostly affect very young and very old people because their immune systems are weakened or not fully developed. Yeah. So it was really weird that this virus had such high mortality rates. Um, it killed people so quickly, um, so violently, and it also affected young adults. Yeah. Um, Which is really impractical because the, uh, young adults are, in macroeconomic terms, the backbone of like economy. They mm -hmm. are the people who like are doctors. They are the people who work. You know, they are they are the people who like drive. Who the drive economy, the economy. <laughs> really. So, it, so it's it, it, really, it's, a, it was really inconvenient, for sure. It's very inconvenient for the stock market. Line go down. Line go down. <laughs> we can't have that. But um, what but I'm saying is it's like also pretty scary because a lot of people in the current pandemic of COVID are kind of dismissing it a little bit because it only, prim well, it, it primarily affects the elderly. Mm -hmm. Not realizing, of course, that like old, old lives matter and also that... <laughs> had circumstances been different the the virus could have specifically targeted this generation of equivalent of millennials mm -hmm. which is spooky yeah it's kind of spooky to to know that had you been born a hundred years ago oh the spanish food would have got me yeah well first with of, your for... with your eating habits <laughs> i i mean i know you well enough um to, to know uh, that i eat primarily donuts and red bull mm -hmm. what is what what is the 1918 equivalent of donuts and Red Bull? They C had donuts. Cigarettes and cocaine. Cigarettes, cocaine, and donuts. <laughs> I was about to say I would probably have been drafted into the First World War, but that's not true because my heritage is neutral in the First World War. Anyway. Dark topic. <laughs> Millions dead. We're laughing. Millions of people are dead and we're laughing. I do want to say this. and I'm going to interject this into the podcast itself. We're laughing a little bit here. This is a very serious topic, but I think that it's important to have a little bit of fun. I agree with you. Otherwise, the doom scrolling is never going to end. Like we can be educational and we can be and we can be funny or we can be educational and, and sad. I would rather be educational and funny if it's going to have like a same result. I think it's fine to laugh a bit. Okay. I, th I don't think we should laugh too much about COVID specifically because that's current. It's a little, it's a little too soon. I think we can joke about the Spanish flu. <clears throat> okay, but of course, the fact that the virus affected young people so severely um, has made it a very interesting virus to study, and has led to people uh, wondering over the course of time, like what, what, what is it about this virus that what's is the deal with this virus? What's the deal with this virus? Why is it so? Let me know when you're done. I'm done. So this unusual characteristic, in addition to the severity of the virus, has led researchers over the ages um, wonder what is it about this virus that makes it so dangerous and so, so contagious? And this led to the virus's genome being sequenced in 2004. 2004? Um, yeah. Wow. It took a really long time. Oh, well, I, I'm, well, I'm guessing it's hard to sequence the genome mm -hmm. in 1918. Yeah, I'm... and remember that a lot of the... Um, I mean, it was even hard to get a hold of the virus, and this is actually part of the history that I'm going to talk a bit about. Like, oh. they had to 
to do a little bit of grave digging to actually find virus pieces that they could um, use as genetic material. And the way that this happened was actually by a PhD student. <laughs> and when I read this, I was shook because imagine that being your PhD project. I'm like you are dig up the Spanish flu. Yeah. Isn't that wild? But it's genius. I can I can I I know for sure that this PhD student like sat in a dorm somewhere and just like oh like since their graduate program just like Oh, I'm going to study the Spanish flu. Oh, I'm going to do it. I'm going to dig up some bodies and I'm going to sequence that genome. Anyway, listen. <laughs> what if they got a bad grade? <laughs> Idea, great. Execution. Uh. Uh. But listen, okay. So so the virus was actually lost for decades following the pandemic. Until in 1950, this young PhD student who was actually Swedish named Johan Hultin mm -hmm. traveled to a little village in Alaska called Brevid in the hopes of finding viral particles preserved in the tissues of uh, the people who suffered from the virus. Because I suppose, I, I guess why they, why he did it is that is because of the permafrost. Because he yeah. knew that the bodies would be preserved in the permafrost and he hoped that the tissues would be, would just be still be intact and the viral particles would still be usable. That's genius. It's, it's a, it's pretty good. Because I was like, oh, well, I, I don't know about you, dear listener, but I was like captivated. Like, where is this going? Like, why is... Why is he going to this village? Like, like digging up... Couldn't you dig up graves in, like, France and stuff? And then I... Genius. Had to be up north. It's actually... There's a thing. I don't know if this... Uh, Tom Scott made a video about this for a while ago. A uh, fellow YouTuber. About uh, an Arctic village that is, like, a full town. I think it's in northern Canada. Where you're not allowed to die and be buried in the same town. Because of the permafrost. Because your be body never decomposes. Because your body never decomposes. So you actually have, when you die, you have to pay a shipping fee to mm. get your body carried somewhere else. Because if you have any sort of viral particle that today may be fine, mm -hmm. we have yeah. no idea what's going to happen. Like, it would get preserved and then might cause a pandemic yeah. in the future. Like if, the, if, the, if, like if the common cold, for example, is preserved and then a thousand years in the future it's, it's cured and then it somehow becomes lethal or something, then that could cause devastation so for some for this reason they're not allowed to bury do you know, their dead do you know that's an that's actually a huge cause of worry these days because of climate change yeah the permafrost is melting mm -hmm. and all the viruses and bacteria that we have not been exposed to ever mm -hmm. are getting getting released in the atmosphere so i saw a news story not too long ago about researchers like looking at like recently exposed uh, woolly mammoth flesh mm -hmm. in siberia mm-hmm that had never been exposed to air be before because of permafrost and stuff like that. But now, due to climate change, was it being exposed and was rotting. And they found, like, ancient worms that, had, that don't exist anywhere today and, and that were waking up. That after thousands of years, they were, like, starting to wiggle around like a little bit. Do you mean, like, intestinal parasites, or what do you mean? I don't know. <laughs> What kind of worms? Tiny worms that they were wiggling around like, in the flesh. Probably parasites. Yeah. Some sort of parasite. Which, to me, is terrifying. Because this, to me, is the thing. The movie, the, the thing. Yeah. If, if we, if we, if Arctic researchers one day send out one frantic message and then all the communication stops, we're not going back there. <laughs> we're leaving them. <clears throat> I'm just saying, this is how you get the thing. But, okay, banter aside, let's take this back to the Spanish flu. So, this guy, this PhD student, 
like I said, so he hoped that the permafrost would have protected the virus particles. So he had to ask for permission from the village elders and he had to excavate the uh, burial mounds in this village. And so he obtained four samples of lung tissue as well as the intact body of a little girl still wearing a blue dress and red ribbons in her hair. Morbid. Who died of Spanish flu, I'm assuming. Or had Spanish flu. The the text doesn't say. They just got a body for they fun. Just, they listen. got some lung particles from the virus. And, and then they, they just they got also, an they extra found, body. They found a body. It was cool. She was wearing a little dress. She, still, is... she was still wearing a little dress. She was wearing ribbons in her hair. Come on, it's cool. Because, you know, you hear about this um, in the context I'm... of, like, swamps and stuff. But mm. apparently, permafrost can do the, the same thing, so. I'm just... I'm ecstatic that this person got permission from the elders. Because usually in history... Usually no permission. <laughs> usually in history, yeah. They just take stuff. Like some, some, some lad from a university in Europe will just be like, oh, cool burial mounds you have. And then they're going to like truck it all off. <laughs> Would be forever. a shame if somebody brought some uh, excavation trucks. Yeah. So I'm, I'm ecstatic. Yeah, it's very respectful. Got... It's very respectful. That he got permission from the elders. Yeah, so, okay, so he had to fly this from the Alaskan village back to the University of Iowa, where he was performing his research. And apparently, so the plane had to make multiple stops in mm -hmm. order to refuel. I think back then, planes had to do that. When was this? In 1950. Oh, okay. And so he had to refreeze the samples using carbon dioxide from a fire extinguisher. So Which, to... again, is brilliant. I, I just love the creativity and the just the freedom that people had back then. People could do science however the fuck they wanted. Yeah, it was... I just think it's so so silly, though, because like, he has to stop here and just... I think it's great. Are we going? <laughs> oh, ten more minutes? Okay. Can you bring me like eight more fire extinguishers? Cool. <laughs> And he had to do that all the way. And he, he managed. I, I mean, mean, it worked. He brought, yeah, he brought the, the tissues back frozen. I'm guessing that this person would have to put the bodies in some sort of container and didn't just have them, like, laying free, strapped down, and just sprayed them with the hose. I think he just took the lung tissues. I'm not sure what happened with the body. Well, um, they probably had, like, some sort of container for them. Like, he didn't yeah. just, like, have a little bag of meat. Yeah, I guess he had a container. But anyway, at the university, he attempted to inject the lung tissue into chicken eggs in the hopes that the viral particles would actually infect the embryos. But unfortunately, the attempt failed. Because mm, chickens aren't humans. No, it's probably because the viral particles were not whole. So mm. it was not a full virus. They, okay. they probably were just genetic pieces. Yeah, they were just damaged. <clears throat> yeah, okay. they were probably too damaged. Um, but however... Even though this was unssuccessful, 46 years later, Hultin stumbled upon an article by another uh, molecular pathologist called Tom Bamberger, who performed some initial work on the virus as well, by using viral fragments isolated from the lung tissue of a U.S. Marine officer. The same guy? Uh, no, this was 46 a 46 years later. So the same guy stumbled upon the research of another guy. Oh. So this other guy did some research on the Spanish flu virus mm -hmm. as well. And so Hultin saw it and he was like, oh, yeah, I also... 46 years ago? I also tried to do something with that. What? Um, so he, you know, he got inspired by it. And he decided to go back to Brevid and uh, attempt it again. So he performed another visit to the village where he recovered the body of an Inuit woman whom he named Lucy. He famously 
used his wife's garden shears to perform the excavation. <laughs> I'm telling you, science was wild back then. No, but this wasn't that long ago. It's no, 46 years after... What, yeah. what is this? This is 1996. 96. That's not too long ago. I don't know. I feel like you wouldn't do that these days. I don't know. Did he talk to the same elders also? Oh, you're back? You want, <laughs> you want more? It's a complete different set of elders. It's kind of wild to me. That They're like, he we've, named... heard, we've heard tales of you. It's kind of wild that he actually named the woman that he recovered. Because didn't the Inuits have like a name for her? Or was she just part of some grave? Um... Like an unnamed... Or I'm, in the mound. I'm not sure. Maybe it was a burial, like a mound. Maybe. Like maybe he just found... Maybe it was like a mass site. Maybe. Coming from someone who has absolutely no insight in this and is not Inuit, sounds sketchy. Following the collection of the genetic material, researchers focused on sequencing the material, particularly the hemagglutinin and the neuraminidase genes. So the hemagglutinin gene contains the genetic material which codes for the surface proteins of the virus. This allows the virus to enter and to infect cells. And these are actually the proteins which are most commonly used in modern vaccines mm. because they are the proteins which are usually targeted by antibodies. So they are like a major target. Neuroaminidase codes for the proteins which allow the virus to escape an infected cell and enter another healthy cell, which contributes to, vi to the viral spread. So again, this is another really important genetic sequence. Mm. Uh, further research was conducted until the entire genome was fully sequenced in 2005, but it still wasn't really clear why this virus was so virulent. So the next step was actually recreating the virus at the CDC headquarters in Atlanta. So the scientist in charge of reconstructing the virus was named Dr. Terence Tumpy. And he actually worked on this project alone for security reasons. As you can imagine, like they were trying to reconstruct a virus that caused this Spanish flu. Yeah. Like they were, let's say they were worried about it. They were, you know, they had some concerns. They don't want this to get out again. Oh yeah. So when I was doing research about this um, and I, I was reading this article, there were like four pages of just basically descriptions of like all the biosafety measures that they were taking. Like, because I think I found it on, um, I, I think it was CDC, on the CDC page. Yeah. And so they really made an effort to show us that, like, yes, we thought about this. It it didn't go out. Like, here's all the, like, lab safety measures that we took. We promise. We promise. It's good. Don't worry. Please, don't worry. Um, As we all know from The Walking Dead, the CDC uh, center in Atlanta has a self-destruct mechanism mm -hmm. that can blow it itself up and burn everything inside. Is that for real? I have no idea if it's real, but <laughs> it's, in the, it's in The Walking Dead. Oh, so, of course, it's real. Yeah, the documentary The Walking Dead, when they go to the CDC center in Atlanta and it burns everything everything inside it. Yeah, but so he worked alone on this project and he was only to work on the virus after hours, um, after everybody else had gone home. So he was by himself in the building, just like doing his little lab work on the virus. Every day he's going to work on his stupid little virus. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so the way he reconstructed the virus was by introducing plasmids containing the eight viral gene segments into human kidney cells. So he was hoping that the plasmids, which is basically, how do I say this? So plasmids are segments of genetic material which can introduce themselves into the genetic material of other cells. And then the cell reads the genetic sequence and produces proteins from that. So by introducing plasmids into cells, you basically force the cell to produce the protein that you want it to produce. Mm 
Which is how viruses reproduce, if I'm not yeah. completely misunderstood. Yeah, exactly. Yay! I knew a thing. Good job. So he was hoping that the plasmids would instruct the cells to transcribe the RNA into viral proteins, and then um, the virus would get built from these separate viral proteins. Mm -hmm. In July 2005, he finally succeeded in creating the virus. To announce it to the rest of the group, he sent a mass email saying, this is one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, and everybody knew what he meant. <laughs> That's cute. It's it's cute, right? It's, it's cute. really cute. I like I like that he is he he's known already like within his workplace for like yeah because I, I just really want to remake the Spanish. I think flow. no because I think everybody was asking him. Everybody was like everyone wanted to know probably. Yeah, he was the only person like working on it. I guess there was you know some secret like he was a bit. It wasn't like a secret, but I think everybody just. Were, was really yeah. anxious to see it come to fruition. So, and I'm guessing um, a lot of people, like they didn't want too many people working with it. Yeah, like, exactly. And since maybe they didn't need more than one person to. I mean, I think it would have hel it would have helped, helped to have multiple people work on it, but I think they just chose yeah. to keep it safe. Especially since it's such a deadly virus. Oh. I mean, even today, flu viruses are horrifyingly dangerous. Mm -hmm. Well, it depends on the strain, but well, I mean, it can be. This strain is bad. Yeah, this strain is bad. So the next step after the construction of the virus was to conduct studies involving mice and human lung cell lines in order to establish a bit more clarity on the virus's ability to replicate and cause disease in the host. So the way that they did this was by using recombinant viruses. And the way they did that is by taking um, regular influenza viruses that were genetically engineered to contain certain genes from the Spanish flu virus. And basically what this means is that they wanted to... Um, it's basically like making Frankenstein viruses. <laughs> I'm trying to like explain... Like, mm -hmm. I'm trying put to put up, this they in They put basic, together parts. They put together... Exactly. So they, they wanted to um, basically break the Spanish flu virus down mm -hmm. into its components. Because they weren't really sure yet which of the virus's components was the one that was making it so virulent mm. and so contagious. Which so, is the bad part. Which is the yeah, was part the bad part. So they wanted to uh, take it apart and then... Um, they put it enhance, back together in many small parts. Enhance the regular flu virus with, um, with each part of the, the bad virus. Mm -hmm. um, it goes without saying that the virus was... Very contagious and severe, so you know these these tests do not <laughs> they they uh, they kind of emphasize what we already knew. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, S Spanish flu bad. Spanish flu bad. For example, four days after infection, the amount of the Spanish virus found in the lung tissue of infected mice was thirty nine thousand times higher than the control. That's bad. What is the control here? Normal flu? Normal flu. Oh my god. What? Yeah. What? So. <laughs> Why? Uh, what did you say? 39,000 times? Yeah. It replicated. Holy. There's going to be some bleeps there, but holy. Yeah. Holy. Yep. That's what all the scientists said. <laughs> um, so. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Oh my. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> So following the experiments, that's a spicy meatball. So following the experiments, Doctor Tumpy concluded. Concluded. <laughs> concluded. Doctor Tumpy concluded. Doctor Trumpy concluded oh that my God, the stop. 
The Spanish flux. So, following all of these experiments, Dr. Tumpy and his colleagues concluded that there are free genes in this, in this virus that make it so virulent and so contagious. That is one, the hemagglutinin gene, and that is the one coding for the virus's surface proteins, and that's what makes the virus able to infect cells. Mm. The second gene is the one coding for the neurominidase, and that is the one which allows the virus to actually exit the cells and infect new cells. And then the third one is the PB1 gene, and that is a polymerase subunit. The function of this gene is um, to code for protein, which allows for the virus to replicate. So it can infect quick, it can breed quick, yeah. and it can spread quick. Exactly. So Oof. it it's very it's very efficient at entering cells. Mm. Um, it replicates very quick, mm. and it also it spreads um, quick. Too. It also exits the cell um, like efficiently. Efficiently. And That's yeah. scary as hell. Yeah. It's basically almost a perfect virus. Maybe you could say that. Yeah. However, Tumpy and his colleagues wrote that. The constellation of all eight genes together make an exceptionally virulent virus. No other human influenza viruses tested were as exceptionally virulent. So, you know, there are some genes that are particularly... that make for a very powerful virus, but really it's about all the components mm. together. And it was the worst, the most virulent virus that they had ever tested. Yeah. yeah flu virus. It was bad. Is, have there ever been a flu virus as bad as this one? Um, or like in recent, like since? Well, the the swine flu virus was one from the same family. Mm. Um, and it wasn't nearly as bad. But the reason why that might be is because these days we have access to a lot more modern treatment methods. Mm. Like, for example, sure, the virus killed. I mean, the virus caused inflammation in the body they i mean it really it really caused it caused a lot of tissue damage and the virus itself was definitely a very powerful pathogen but the reason why so many people died was also because of secondary infections for example pneumonia and back then they didn't have antibiotics so those secondary infections um could not have been mm. cured so a big part of why the virus was deadly was that it not only was lethal on its own but that it like reduced the person's it like, so made people susceptible to other exactly. diseases as well exactly which yeah which again in world war one trenches bad news yeah okay so now lastly do you want to know why the virus affected young people disproportionately yes so this is because of a phenomenon called cytokine explosion and basically, the way this works is that when the human body is being attacked by a virus, the immune system sends messenger proteins called cytokines, which recruit different kinds of immune cells. Um, because the immune system is very complicated and different kinds of immune cells are responsible for different aspects of the immune response. So the cytokines role um, is really to recruit different cells and bring them to the site of infection. So all of these different cells come in and they're aggressive. So a lot of these cells release chemokines, for example, which are basically destructive proteins. And if you have a lot of these chemokines being released at the site of infection, that means that some tissue is going to be damaged. And that's just that's just part of it. Like yeah. that's just something that happens when you become infected. But if you have if you have these cytokines 
recruiting more cells which release more cytokines it kind of creates like a positive feedback loop which means that in the end you're gonna have a lot of like local tissue damage and this is why people ended up having weakened bronchial tubes and lungs which cleared the way for bacterial pneumonia so they had a lot of like tissue damage um, and this was especially common in young people because their immune systems were so strong. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit like a burglar invading your house and mm -hmm. you're shooting them with a rocket launcher, mm -hmm. thereby destroying your entire house. In yeah, the basically, like basically you're shooting holes into your walls and yeah, maybe you're going to get the burglar, but you're also going to end up with a messed up house. With a messed up house. So, in so the it's end... actually kind of better to have a weak immune response in some cases. No. <laughs> what? It just, uh, honestly, it was just kind of, you, you got messed up in... In different ways. In different ways. So this really. virus just says, hey, screw you. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah ma basically. no matter who you are or your age group, die. Yeah. So it was clear that this virus was very dangerous, very contagious. Not much was known about it at the time. So all the stuff that I was talking about, this, these are things that we really found out in 2005. Mm. So decades later. At the time, first of all, virology, virology was a very young science. Mm -hmm. So we really, I mean, yeah, like, like we said, we couldn't even see the virus yeah. until the 1930s. So um, these people just had to... They knew something was going on, but mm -hmm. they couldn't really learn that much about it. Yeah. While not knowing anything about the virus, how did cities deal with it? Well, that very much depended on where we're talking about mm -hmm. and a little bit about when we're talking about. So most of government responses at this time were not really focused on the virus that much. There were some cities that would have individual responses, but uh, oftentimes federal governments had more pressing concerns, mm. as in the ongoing world war. Yeah. In 1918, the war is still going on, and most governments don't want people to, to be distracted from this. So one, one big thing that the government does in many affected countries is censorship, which we're going to talk about in a very, very short bit. And beyond that, it was really left to... To public like, health To agencies, public health agents. Yeah. And, but, and also to, like, mayors mm. and local hospitals mm. to, like, do their own thing. And there are many different... There are many varying uh, responses mm -hmm. between um, individual cities. So, for example, the city of Philadelphia, they, they had been tasked to gather... $250 million for war supplies, and they saw an opportunity to have a parade. Mm -hmm. In the middle of quarantine. In the middle of like, quarantine. You know well, what? the quarantine, well, this town, Philadelphia, quarantine, no, no, no. We're not talking quarantine here. We're talking about the war. <laughs> don't, think, don't think about that whole virus thing. We're going to get war dollars for our boys overseas. Did they even have a quarantine in Philadelphia? No, no, not during the pandemic. And mm -hmm. this is something that really, um, this was um, something that was a bit controversial. Because the Spanish flu hit Philadelphia on September 19th, 1918, mm -hmm. from sailors who were returning from Europe. 
And city officials projected that the, this parade would only have 10,000 people, and many doctors were like, hey, don't have this parade. Do not have the parade. Like, I know the war is important, but if you have the parade, it's going to be a disaster. However, Dr. Wilmer Krusen, the director of Philadelphia's Department of Health and Charities, uh, just said, nah, <laughs> we're going to have this parade. And that's a direct quote. <laughs> direct <laughs> quote. Nah. <laughs> and as a result, thousands of people died. Yeah, I read that within 72 hours, every bed in Philadelphia's 31 hospitals was filled. It was filled. Um, this virus hit quick. Yeah. Like, if you got sick on the parade, day after you were in the hospital. Yeah, and apparently following the parade, uh, 4,500 people died in the next few days. Because this is another thing about the virus. It, mm -hmm. it, it had, somehow, it, it, like, it created complications in a matter of days. Yeah. It, it hit quickly. Mm. And... Beyond, uh, so a lot of other cities, however, they instituted some quarantining, mm. uh, some curfews. Mm -hmm. if it, and it, because it would depend so much between countries and between cities, we can't really name all of them. But something that we can talk a little bit about is the more societal response to this. Mm -hmm. Because something that is a parable between, maybe not a parable, I, don't, I mean, that's not the right word, but like uh, an analogy between the Spanish flu and the ongoing coronavirus is, for example, masks. A lot of cities is issued mask mandates. Mm -hmm. Some cities even had um, fines for not wearing masks. Yes. For example, the, the city of San Francisco. Um, citizens apparently were fined $5, which was a lot of money at the time, if they were caught in public without masks. Mm -hmm. And they were charged with disturbing the peace also, which I think is kind of funny. Mm -hmm. The San Francisco Chronicle even said that the simplest type of mask was a folded gauze affixed with elastic or tape. Mm. This became like the, the, the mask of choice. Today mm. we have like surgical masks mm. in like pharmacies that anyone can buy. No, but people, back then... People wore they... cheesecloth <laughs> on their faces. Yeah, yeah. with tape that they just taped to their faces. Listen, so sometimes you can works, see pictures. Works. But here's the thing though. In many times, they didn't really work that well. I Today, think... masks are good. I want to take tell everyone who's listening, masks, yeah, masks this are is, good. Th this is something that I want to make very clear. <laughs> this is a very pro-mask podcast. podcast. <laughs> However, But masks back then, like a piece of gauze on your face, it is better than nothing. But it wasn't like as effective as it is today. However, the police in San Francisco, they went for uh, gauze, um, which uh, a, a, a journalist said looked like Nine ordinary slabs of ravioli arranged in a square. <laughs> um, and I really want to read this. This is the part of the fun facts that I mentioned earlier. Because the, uh, they made... They wrote a lot about this. Because there were also some room for creativity. Some coverings were fearsome-looking machines that lent a pig-like aspect to the wearer's face. How, how did that work? Because they would fold them in various like shapes. Like they, they would make them look like... Like, like like a snout? Yeah, or like like monstrous snout things. They would still cover everything. So today people have like floral patterns and nice little things. Back then they would like have shapes on there because they would be thick gauze. Today we have cat girls. Back then they were pig girls. Oh my god. And as you say, uh, the penalty for not wearing a mask was between uh, $5 and $10. Mm -hmm. uh, or you could have... How much is that in local, in, in uh, current... I do not know. I think less than a hundred dollars. I'm gonna look it it's up. It's still a lot of money. Uh, sixty-five dollars. Nice. 
or you could be sentenced to 10 days imprisonment. Whoa. Because as we know, putting people in prison during a pandemic, very smart. On November 9th, a thousand people were arrested for not wearing their masks. City prisons swelled from standing room only to standing room only. So they could just stand like packed like sardines. When a judge asked the prisoners, where are their masks? A lot of people said fake names. Some said that they just wanted to light a cigar. And some said that they just hated following laws. I heard the people used to I cut... hate laws. <laughs> I, heard, I heard the people used to cut holes in their mask to be able to smoke cigars. Yes. A lot of cigar smoking back then, too. Mm. Outside of some mask policies and outside of some local quarantines, primarily, governments mostly left this to health responders. Mm-hmm. This was seen as a health issue, mm-hmm. primarily. This was not something seen that the government would deal with. Because currently, as we mentioned, there's a war going on. And there is an idea that they should maybe focus on, on that instead. And uh, all the responsibility instead went to public health officials. But the governments were involved in some way, weren't they? Yes. Despite not wanting to deal with the pandemic, they had other priorities when it comes to the war, for example. Mm -hmm. So the way they dealt with the pandemic was to cover it up, basically as much as possible, Mm -hmm. to censor it. Mm. And why was that? Well, when you're in a state of total war, in in a world war, you want your entire economy, you want your all of your citizens to be focused on winning that war mm. at any price. Mm. You don't want to divert resources, you don't want to uh, you don't want to distract and you don't want morale to fall. Yeah. Because all sides in this war were censoring it. Partly because they didn't want the other side to know how affected your side was and also because you don't want your soldiers in the trench to think that they're coughing means anything more than just a light little snip. Mm-hmm. Cuz then they're not going to go over the wall and run into into machine gun fire. And for a large part, this was for morale. But a consequence of this was that there wasn't that much of a response otherwise. There wasn't a lot of public knowledge about the pandemic because of the censorship for a long time. Many people thought that because my newspapers aren't really reporting on this pandemic, it's probably not happening here mm. as much. Mm. Many uh, public leaders wanted to downplay the dangers of it. Many wanted to compare it to the seasonal flu. Mm-hmm. Can't relate to that. Or they wanted to say the message of the virus exists, but it's only the enemy that has it. Mm. Which means that we are winning so hard. We're mm. winning even more than than we were before because now <laughs> the enemy are sick. We're fine though. Don't mm. worry about it. We're mm-hmm. fine. Yeah, I, I love how a few countries even passed laws that made it illegal to publish anything about the pandemic as Mm -hmm. that could damage national morale. So Great Mm -hmm. Britain, for example, passed the Defense of the Realm Act, which was used to suppress news stories that might be a threat to morale. Mm -hmm. Um, The government could slap what's called a D notice on a news story, D for defense, which meant that the story could not be published because it was not in the national interest. The United States did the same thing in 1918, they passed the um, 1918 Sedition Act, which made it a crime to say anything the government perceived as harming the country or the war effort. Mm-hmm. And this led also to a lot of people self-censoring for fear of, mm. of, of like butting heads with the censor. So mm. even though 
what they wanted have said might have been okay. Mm-hmm. They just didn't want to take the chance. Yeah. So there's a lot about the public knowledge about the pandemic that we don't actually know about yeah, because people didn't exactly. want to talk about it. Now I see what you mean about the mystery because yes. so much of it was censored. It mm-hmm. is, I guess, it, it is pretty hard to know maybe like the public knowledge of it or yeah. the public interpretation of it because, I mean, there was no, not, not so much written evidence of it. No, because even local papers... They didn't want to risk writing it because mm. being breaking the censorship law would be <laughs> would be bad for business. Yeah. So many people would just try to. They wouldn't talk about the pandemic at all because they knew it was bad news, and this led to the pandemic just not being as well known. But there was one. There was one country that did write about about the pandemic. Can you guess which which country wrote primarily about the Spanish flu? Could have been Spain. Actually, no, it's Portugal. Yes, it was Spain. Um, Spain (laughs) wrote uh, heavily about the Spanish flu because Spain was neutral in the war and Spain's very close to France was also... uh, They had a lot of troop movements through Spain. Mm -hmm. Um, So they were affected by the flu Mm -hmm. significantly early on as well. Even their king, King Alfonso XIII, which is one hell of a title, uh, became sick and he became very sick. So Spain, Spanish newspapers, they wrote about the virus. They wrote about the severity of the virus, which is more, which is actually more important. Because while newspapers all over the world would like write about that there was a virus going on, Spain was only the one of the few countries that where they would say, hey, there's a virus. Oh, and it's killing all of us. It's so lethal. Oh my God, holy <laughs> It's so bad here. Help, help, help. Whereas in the UK and in America, it's like, it's a virus. Don't worry about it. And this led people to think that the virus had either originated in Spain or that it just hit hardest in Spain mm. because those were the people who were writing about it. Yeah. Lara Vogt, curator of education at the National World War I Museum and Memorial in Kansas City, Missouri, said that it's called the Spanish flu because the Spanish media did their job. That is not something that happened in Great Britain in the US, which has a long history of blaming other countries for <laughs> disease. Do they still do that, do you think? Do you think maybe America has a tendency of blaming other countries for disease? Uh, The the outbreak was also known as the Spanish grip. Or or the the Spanish Spanish lady. lady. (laughs) It's true. Love that. Love that. Love the Spanish lady. This is why it's important to call COVID, for example. COVID. And not the China virus. Because it, uh, even though it does originate in China, it's not that important or representative it doesn't actually provide any useful information for future generations and it doesn't really provide any useful information when it comes to talking about pandemics and if the name sticks it may lead to flawed perceptions in the future like yes the virus is known to have originated in china today but it is not where the virus is most severe by a long shot like it's more it's currently most severe in america at the time of recording Mm -hmm. and brazil and india so being a bit more clinical with the names is important because once a name sticks, it kind of sticks forever. Like with the Spanish flu, if we call it the 1918 influenza type A pandemic, no one's going to know what we're talking about. However, in 1918, the Spanish flu is ravaging on and the warring nations of Europe, they're covering up their flu as much as they can to protect morale and to pretend that our side is doing much better than the other side. However, uh, General Erich Ludendorff's German troops were so badly affected by the virus that he had to stop his last offensive. 
An entire offensive by a general had to be stopped because his, all of his soldiers were sick. Yeah, you read that actually the Great War ended early because of the virus. It may have. Uh, it is a bit hard to, to know. The virus did definitely affect troops of the central powers potentially a bit more heavily than, than the Entente powers. We don't know this to be completely true. But it is, when you look at the First World War, it is... It's curious that in 1917, the Central Powers are doing really well. They've knocked out Russia from the war. They can focus their their troops on the Western Front. The Western Front is doing pretty badly on both sides, pretty, pretty much. But suddenly, Russia is out. And then suddenly, it ends <laughs> in late 1918, during the second wave of this deadly pandemic, which infects half of all German soldiers. So one out of two German soldiers on the Western Front has the Spanish flu. That's wild. Um, Wait, it, why it, were they infected so much more severely than than anybody else? Who knows? I don't think there is a. I don't think that there is a direct explanation. Mm -hmm. uh, it may have to do with like lacking medical supplies because mm -hmm. uh, the the Entente was being supplied by America and mm -hmm. the world, whereas mm -hmm. the Central Powers were a bit more isolated. Okay. It may have had something to do with just bad luck. Sometimes pandemics just affect one side more than the other. Fair. But the question about whether or not the, the virus affected the war is a little bit of a chicken and egg scenario because the flu made conditions on the front a lot worse, obviously. But it, it is also the conditions on the front that affected how well the pandemic could spread there. Because the conditions were so bad, that's why it could spread so quickly and so easily. So it's a bit hard to know whether or not it actually like took hold. Yeah, I could see that. Since the virus was around probably earlier than 1918, it did reduce troop numbers. It took a hard toll on movements and logistics because suddenly more medical supplies are needed than you would uh, think that you would need. Mm -hmm. And it just becomes a, a, a large strain on the war machine as it is. But we don't know how much it tipped one side or another. It could have it could have benefited one either side, but it probably didn't make things easier for the generals, I guess, mm -hmm. to say. History.com uh, talks about how the army medical department recognized that the threat posed to US troops, and they would urge officials to stop troop movements, halt the draft, and quarantine soldiers, something that you can imagine that the generals do not want to do mm -hmm. in this war when they want to send everyone over to die as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. Even Woodrow Wilson, President Woodrow Wilson said like, nah, nah, direct quote, again, don't care. Pandemic, go. The only, the only real measure that the uh, Wilson administration did to halt the main source of the virus was to reduce occupancy on troop ships by 15%. Mm -hmm. I did can not work. Yeah, I can imagine that didn't do much. <laughs> didn't uh, change freaking anything. Uh, people... And this was, this was from, this was after like intense pressure from, from public health yes. authorities and doctors yeah. and journalists just being like, hey, you need Please, to stop these you transports need to do something. entirely. They yeah. wanted him to stop the transports entirely and quarantine the soldiers when they got back. Mm -hmm. And all he did was like, I guess we'll just have fewer people. We'll on just the have boats. We're still gonna fewer yeah, people. We're still gonna send all the young people over mm -hmm. in tight, tight ships. As you can see, this did not work out that well. No. At the end of 1918, uh, 45,000 U.S. troops had died. Uh, no, no one knows how many people they probably spread it to mm -hmm. before they did. Some historians have suggested that the pandemic was so devastating among uh, the warring nations 
that it probably hastened the end of the war, like I mentioned. The nations declared an armistice on November 11th, which is when the pandemic was peak bad. Mm -hmm. One of the worst things. It even interrupted the peace conference in 1918, the year afterwards, when President Wilson came down with a debilitating disease. A debilitating mystery disease. A I love mystery how they, disease. I, yeah, and, and didn't they also hide it? Like, they, they, they pretended, they were like... His personal doctor told the press yeah. that his president had called a, a cold in the it's Paris just, rain. It's just a little chilly. It's he's just a little chilly. He's, he's, he's got a cold. Don't worry I also, about it. I also the Spanish, read... though. Oh. Some say that he was so sick that he could not sit up in his own bed and his otherwise consistent behavior, like he was a pretty stable person, people would say, um, it became erratic and unpredictable and he was paranoid, he thought that there were spies in his room, I think he, he had probably a very high fever. There's still, so I, I heard that there's still some people that argue that he may have gotten a stroke. Yes, that is a theory. But I think most people agree that he actually just had the Spanish flu. He probably just had Spanish flu. Yeah. A lot of people had Spanish flu back then. Mm-hmm. So while people are dying on the front from Spanish flu and bullets and mustard gas and mustard gas. How and is trench foot. Trench foot. Oh god, trench foot. How is the response at home? Because the government is censoring primarily. The government. Yeah, the government. Want people to the think government about response is censor. Um, the government isn't really involved in the public health response. Mm. So, so really, it's up to the public health agencies to deal with the pandemic. The good thing about it is that they actually had a fair amount of power and authority due to past sanitation and vaccination programs. The influenza pandemic did challenge that a little bit because previous like previous methods that they, that they were used to and that they thought were going to work did not really work. Mm-hmm. Um, this, is not, so, this is not your daddy's pandemic, baby. Yeah, so so they got a little humbled by the pandemic. They got a humbled? They had a slice of... What a of, phrasing! They had a, they had a little bit of a slice of humble pie. Mm-hmm. In the terms of 50 million people dead. <laughs> yeah, they were not prepared for an event of this size. Like... I feel sorry for them. Not to mention that the fact that public health agencies were not the size that they are today. There was no WHO. There were like a few guys in a building, three nerds in a building with two, glasses. Two boys sitting in a building, <laughs> five feet apart because the Spanish flu. <laughs> yeah, they were, they were a few guys uh, in a building, but they were not prepared. For an event of this size, mm-hmm. they did not have antibiotics. They did not have a vaccine. Yeah, they didn't even know if this was a virus. Was this a bacteria? Was it what, what was this? Yeah. So it's really you know I I um, I feel for them. Mm-hmm. However, they did know that the pathogen was spread through the air. So, which which was good. It was a great start mm-hmm. in an effort to control contagion. Uh, what they did was they banned public ga- gatherings and many public institutions were closed. Mm. Which... Can, I, can I say a fun fact about this? Sure. Because they knew, because because they knew this, a lot of like New York apartments today have like really wide radiators, because they're meant to be operated with the window open. Mm-hmm. Like you're, they're they're so wide and they get they get so hot because you're meant to have the windows open to like ventilate super much because they were built during this time. Fun fact. Mm, fun fact. As we said earlier. 
uh, the severity of the implemented regulations really varied from place to place and really it really just depended on what the local public health agencies decided. Yeah, what the local doctor wanted. In the United States, there was a committee of the American Public Health Association, which issued measures to limit large gatherings and prohibit non-essential meetings, which meant that basically like saloons, dance halls, and cinemas would be closed. They prohibited funeral gatherings, which... Something's happening today with COVID. (sighs) Yeah, because they were deemed non-essential. And... um, you know, must have really suck to not not even be able to, yeah, say goodbye to family members. Yeah, but when you think about it, it is something like in in this grand scheme of things, like it sucks, but it is for the better. Like you don't want to, you you do want to pay respects to the dead, but you also don't want to create more dead. No, but look at this though: churches were allowed to remain open. So the committee believed that uh, minimum services should be conducted. And I guess they this this was probably another way to maintain morale. Mm. Um, I guess allowing people to congregate like in order to minimally in order to like pray for better times. Mm. I guess this would this really helped people. So I suppose it makes sense. Yeah. Not only is half your family off in Europe to fight a war, half the village half the village is dying from the Spanish flu. And the saloons and cinema are closed, just like today. So it's like, to, it's like last year, but worse. At least we have internet. At least we have a Netflix to like spend our time with. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I found is that streetcars were thought to be a special menace to society. <laughs> a special menace! Because they had poor ventilation and they were crowded and unclean. Is that... I'm, oh, I wonder if the Spanish flu may have, may have played a part in the elimination of the streetcar. Because, like, after after this era is, like, when they start being phased out and being replaced with, like, cars. Hmm. Maybe. You should look into that. Yeah. I want to make an episode about architecture sometime on my YouTube channel. I kind of want to make that one here, too. <laughs> but it doesn't really work into medical history that much. Because uh, I love streetcars. We can talk about it. We can talk about it. Are they a menace? <laughs> streetcars. Are they they're, a menace? <laughs> they're coming on your street. <laughs> silently and electric. Streetcars on my street, it's more likely than you think. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, the committee also encouraged reduced hours in stores and factories in order to prevent overcrowding. Mm. So, this was all in the United States, and compared to other countries, the regulations in the United States were pretty severe. So, mm. like in, in Britain, for example, they were a lot milder. Like, they limited music hall performances to less than three consecutive hours mm-hmm. and required a 30 minute ventilation period between shows. So it's you know yeah. they 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 had something, but it was it wasn't, it wasn't really much. I'm guessing that a part of this is because the UK at this time is like doing, is like even more focused on the war than America. Is. Maybe like America is in the war, but they see it as like an overseas problem, and they can like maybe focus on it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Like they don't have to. Do, we want the UK is like their full attention is on the war. Yeah. So they don't, they don't even want to recognize it. Maybe. I'm, I'm, I'm speculating here, but I'm thinking... That's I'm liking the theory. Um, I also just like to trash on the UK. <laughs> age-long tradition of my people. <laughs> okay, but listen to this. In Switzerland, theaters, cinemas, concerts, and shooting matches were all suspended. And shooting matches! Oh no, the Swiss, they love their guns. And it led to a state of panic. <laughs> <laughs> they... You do not want to piss off the Swiss. Yeah, they... I, I just... I love it. They couldn't handle it. They, they couldn't were like... handle it. Oh my god. Yeah. You, you, 
I'm trying to emulate a, this is a Swiss worse, accent This is here. worse than the pandemic. Give me the virus. Just I, give me I'll, the virus. I need take... to shoot my guns. I need to I'll be sing my, uh, sing my uh, yodels. Is that where they sing the yodels? Is in the Alps, yes. Huh. So they sing it in Northern Italy, Switzerland, Austria, and Germany. You know, this podcast is teaching me that I know a lot less than I think I do. Well, <laughs> there's is... all these like facts that are coming up. They're like, I don't know. <laughs> Did you also know that the Swiss love their guns even today? I did not know. Mm. All a lot of people in Switzerland own guns, and they <laughs> they still have like shooting ranges as like a big activity. Hmm. Moving on. Yes. A very controversial measure was the closing of schools. Have we heard this before? Well, I live I... In, We both live in Sweden, where... Schools have not been closed. They've never been closed. Well, it's not I think, big deal I think here. The people over here. 16 do uh, have, yes. like, online education. I think Everybody lot... under 16 still goes to school. It's wild. I... Yeah, because kids are immune to all viruses and diseases. It's wild, though. I, you know, I try, I, I try so hard to be good and to avoid... Um, gatherings and I wear a mask and everything even mm. though it's not mandatory and then I go to the bus stop and there's like a group of like 10 teenagers just hugging and giving each other piggyback mm-hmm. rides and like just licking, each other's licking the inside of each other's mouths mm-hmm. and it's like are we living in there like what do you turn 17 and suddenly you don't do that anymore like I'm I'm sorry but I'm salty yeah you should be salty I am salty hey Sweden amp up your pandemic response <laughs> We're dying here. Oh Not a joke. God, I want out. So the closing of schools was a topic that was very controversial. Mm-hmm. In Britain, they closed public elementary schools. In France, students with any symptoms and their siblings were excluded from school. In the United States, however, school closures were not as widely accepted. Mm. Um, as it is today. As it is today. So the, the public health committee debated its value uh, questioning the effectiveness of closing school against the loss of educational standards. It was controversial to close schools, much like uh, much like today, unfortunately. In addition to closing schools, the uh, Public Health Committee also wanted to initiate education programs and publicity on respiratory hygiene, about the dangers of coughing, sneezing, and the careless disposal of nasal discharges. The careless disposal of, care- of yeah. nasal discharge. I really wanted to say that. It's a, I, I wrote it in I quotation it. marks it's in my good. notes. Um, so this, the, they aimed to teach people the value of hand washing and, you know, sneezing in the, in your, in the, in the... Armpit? Pit. No, it's not armpit. It's like the pit of your arm. But it's not an armpit. <laughs> it's not an armpit. Do you in, know what I mean? Yeah, in, the, in, your in, the bend, fo- in your arm fold. In the bend of your arm. Yeah. In your arm bend. Um, Something that people stopped doing after this, and we had to relearn last <laughs> yeah, year. We had, I, yeah, I'm salty I about we, that. I, I, this we're is salty a lot about about a lot of things. Oh, but I, I have a special. This, I, I don't know why, but I, this hangs up. I, I go into some sort of feral, demonic rage whenever I see someone sneeze into their hand, and this happened before the pandemic too. Whenever I see someone like like <laughs> into their hands, I. My eyes like tr- light up red, and yeah. I want to like cut off their hands because they're oh. now a biohazard. Yeah, I hate that so much. I I have a general, I'm I'm generally displeased when I see people on public transport just being sick, mm. um, especially in these <laughs> uncertain times. Mm-hmm. Whenever I get on the train or I get on the bus and I see somebody just being visibly sick, mm-hmm. not wearing a mask, I see red. Yeah. You come into my town, you come into my train, 
You come into my streetcar. And you sneeze. So the public health departments issued flu posters to educate the community and reduce the spread of infection, which varied according to the type of community and level of education, mm -hmm. which I think is an interesting detail to mention. They had to, they had to um, take into consideration how educated people were. Some people just don't know shit about you washing gotta, their hands. You know, sometimes maybe you gotta start from the basics. Bacteria is a very small organism. In hospitals, the number of beds per ward was decreased to reduce the transmission of the disease. Those with complications, like pneumonia, which is very common, were separated from the rest to prevent the others from, um, from you know, progressing to this more fatal disease. Yeah. And then sheets were hung between the beds to, ma to mimic isolation. Mm -hmm. um, like plastic today. Yeah, like plastic today. In, you can see how like in how they had a very similar pandemic response as to today. I think it's so interesting. Like reading this, it's it's like whoa, we're yeah. still doing this, and yeah. we're still struggling with some of these aspects. Like really, we're still we messing did, up. We're giving we're, basic exactly, protection for exactly. healthcare workers. A hundred years later, we still was, haven't figured out that people you, need masks. You know, it was it was actually a little surreal to read about this. Like it's been a hundred years, and mm -hmm. we really haven't learned our lesson. No. Gotta say. And we never will. That's the nature of the species we call that. man. Don't say that. But but they came up with disinfection. So a key aspect of prevention was the use of disinfection and sterilization methods. Not that kind of sterilization. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so all bedding and rooms in hospitals were to be periodically disinfected to kill pathogens and naval ambulance trains uh, were washed down with a weak Isel antiseptic solution. Isel? Isel? I have no idea what this word is. Who knows? Um, Drain cleaner. <laughs> an antiseptic hand solution was placed conveniently for those on duty in the influenza ward. Like, like in every store shop today. Hold, like this is I'm the similarity. You, I'm telling you, it's surreal. Yeah. And then we go to masks. So they, uh, they did have mandatory masks in some cities mm -hmm. like we mentioned the gauze the gauze the tape. yeah the face masks consisted of a half yard of gauze folded like a triangular bandage which covered the mouth nose and chin there was even a rhyme which was a popular way to remind people of the ordinance here comes the rhyme oh, no. obey the laws and wear the gauze protect your jaws from septic paws We... Say it with me, everyone. Oh, Obey the laws and wear the gauze. Protect your jaws from sept septic paws. If we only had this rhyme in February of last year, we'd all be fine. I like this rhyme a lot. Do you want to say it with me? I, okay, um, okay, I need the text. Obey, Obey the, the laws and wear the gauze. Protect, protect your jaws from, from septic paws. That's cute. I love it. As Heck. So they found that the mask wearing led to a rapid decline in the number of cases of influenza. There was a study in the Great Lakes that did not find such beneficial results. However, masks were often homemade and they were made from like gauze, they were made from cheesecloth. People didn't really have access to like surgical masks or at least like commercially. There, there weren't really any like commercially available masks that we know work. Maybe some of these studies, maybe they analyze like samples that were using masks that maybe just weren't as efficient. Mm. It's it's real. it's hard to know with these studies. But yeah. overall, most studies agree that mask wearing did prevent the virus from being mm. spread. At least a little bit. And on that note, 
can I come in and talk a bit about the anti-mask wearing movements of the same day? Please be my guest. So there was something called the Anti-Masked League <laughs> that, was, uh, that was being formed. And it was formed by many people. Today, we may associate um, anti-mask behavior with a certain uh, political inclination. Mm -hmm. But at the time, not so. Uh, masks at the time was often seen as like hiding your... You see, you hide your face. And many people were skeptical of their efficiency. Mm -hmm. And opposition to it was sometimes political. Can you guess which political movement of the 1918s would have an exceptional opposition to masks? It was actually suffragists. You wouldn't think so. But um, many women were critical of wearing masks because they wanted to be visible in society. Suffered, I, this is according to the New York Times on an article about the, um, about, the, about the masks. Suffragists fighting for the right to vote made a gesture that rejected covering their mouths at a time when their voices were crucial. Maybe, at hold on, maybe, do you think there was something to do with, like, they did not want to be silenced? Yes. So no, it's a something... symbolic silencing of right, having Right, right, exactly. This. I can see that. Mm -hmm. that's, that's really interesting. I have no idea. At the annual convention of the Illinois Equal Suffrage Association in October of 1918, they set chairs four feet apart, closed door at the public and limited attendance to 100 delegates. But the women showed their scorn for the masks. And one reason... Alison K. Lange, an associate history professor at Wentworth Institute of Technology, said one reason could have been that they wanted to keep a highly visible profile. They wanted to be seen as women. They wanted their icons, their leaders, to be visible and not hidden away, looking like generic. Uh, they wanted to make sure that their leaders were familiar political figures among the people who attended. They wanted the audience to see, like, oh, that's that person, that's this. And you can't do that if you're wearing a mask. In uh, the San Francisco mask ordinance expired after four weeks at noon on November 21. And the city and the church celebrated. And a lot of people wanted to show their scorn for masks. Because San Francisco, as you mentioned, had uh, a mask policy. Mm -hmm. But when, when it was over, one delinquent wanted to like show his scorn for the mask so much that he blowed his nose off his face. Like he... So his mask flew off, flew off of his face... And almost ruptured his ear. Oh no. Like he really went into it. He then stomped on the mask. And uh, police officers watching it said, yikes. <laughs> the uh, public response was, yikes. They freaking, they freaking, they hated this. And this is during the first wave. The second wave hasn't come here. And then, <laughs> as we mentioned, the, the second wave was even worse. By December, a month later, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors was again thinking maybe they're doing a mask requirement. And they met testy opposition. There was almost a riot outside of the uh, town hall mm -hmm. where people were outside and they were so angry about the pot even the potential of a new mask requirement. I don't get why. Why are people so against where? I mean, OK, so I understand the, the symbolism, you know, the, the silencing mm -hmm. symbolism. I get it. There is a there is an answer. OK, let's hear it. Uh, things were violent and aggressive. But it was because people were losing money. Mm -hmm. It was not a constitutional issue or a rights issue. It was a money issue. Because masks were expensive. Not everyone can afford gauze. Mm -hmm. And you have to clean it. You have to reuse it. It's expensive in the long run. And a lot of poor people can't just buy masks as they were. Because they were not provided by the government. Yeah. So a lot of people were Well, like, they should be if, provided. I agree with this. They should especially be if they're mandatory. Yeah, yeah. I see and that. so a lot of people were really upset uh, that this 
this just simply couldn't work. So we're seeing, interestingly, a completely different type of mask opposition today mm-hmm. than from then, but still to a, to a similar type of pandemic response, but yeah. for vastly different reasons. Yeah, isn't that interesting? History repeats itself. Well, it doesn't, but it rhymes. <laughs> That's what they say. All History right. isn't cyclical, but it does rhyme. We've been talking about this pandemic for for a while. For a while, I've got. We've edited out maybe three quarters of this podcast. We've been recording for eight hours. I'm sitting. I'm sitting. I'm looking at my computer. We we've been talking about it for two hours and twenty eight minutes, which um, to you is maybe minute forty two. Hopefully, something <laughs> like that. If I'm wrong, we'll see how we edit this. We're but, tired. But but okay. So it's it was it was a big deal. It was a big global phenomenon. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a war going on. Mm-hmm. People were dying like flies. Mm-hmm. How is the the economy faring? Well, of this? course, this is the most important part of any of any discussions about any pandemic. We need to think about the market. Well, the market wasn't actually that affected. Mm-hmm. The economy wasn't actually that affected by the virus because remember, it's a world war going on. The the economy, things are already bad. <laughs> the the economy is already sort of focused on making like arm like armor and bullets and rifles and uniforms that's basically what the economy is doing right now so any damage to the economy caused by the virus is very hard to measure because mm-hmm. well the economy doesn't really exist right now we're in a war we're mm-hmm. making we're not making consumer goods we're not doing a lot of that we are currently doing war material so th- so it's hard to know how the virus impacted the civilian economy because the civilian economy doesn't really exist at this moment in a big uh, in a big way, as it does when it's peacetime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess. I guess. I, I mean, I you know, I'm not a historian, but it seems that people would be. Well, if, if I had to guess, I would say that like civilian economy would be like almost frozen. Like yes. people wouldn't really be buying much other than, you know, basic necessities. Yeah, it was yeah. basic necessities, like and a lot of rationing. Like uh, mm-hmm. if you could avoid using up materials that could be used for the war, then you should. So, uh, so they it was very much not like on a break. So it's kind of hard to measure the impact of the virus itself in the economy because the the war had already like devastated the economy. But what we do know is that quarantines, for example, slowed down uh, stores that were open, cinemas, as I mentioned, um, saloons, etc. These type of institutions couldn't really go on as easily because they can't be open all the time. A bit, a little bit like people talk today about like how restaurants are struggling because of COVID. Some communities were harder hit than others. The economic impact, or like the societal impact, could be devastating, depending on the size of the community and the size of the economy, because the virus did kill a lot of young adults. And young adults are the people who do a lot of the work, a lot of the labor. So many communities were completely devastated. The impact of the virus would affect society to a level where it couldn't operate as much anymore. We have, advan- and I guess, I guess that's why. To yeah. go back to the censorship part, that's that's also why they censored. Because yeah. if people knew of the extent of the virus, they would just stop working and then war production would cease. War production would stop, slow down. The economy would probably crash even more than it yeah. already is. Yeah. It's like they really wanted people to keep going to work. Yeah. Otherwise, 
you're not getting you're not you're gonna get less bullets for the front. Yeah. Today we have advanced logistics and trucks and everywhere, and we're in peacetime, obviously. But in those days, if your milkman doesn't come to your house to give you milk because you he's milk. sick, you you sucks. <laughs> you don't got no milk anymore. Get your own milk. No, you can't because you don't own a cow, and there's no cow near you. Get to know a cow or a new milkman. You can't. The, your milkman won't come because he's sick with with the Spanish flu. He's dead because they're very skilled, mostly young adults or a lot of young adults. And it coincided with the First World War, where many young adults would be drafted into the military, where many young men would die. It affected much of outgoing economies. Men were also a bit more affected by the virus than women because men were also more outgoing. They would like go around and mm -hmm. be social. Mm -hmm. Women would stay home more, mm -hmm. which meant that they died more. And because men did most of labor in those days, economy is even more impacted. Uh, because men, as we all know, like to go out and interact, lick their faces of their friends, while women <laughs> stayed home with like two friends. <laughs> That's how it works. And so the economy was struggling a little bit, struggling from many different fronts, partly because they were not doing civilian material and also because like workers are dying yeah. because of Spanish flu and staying home uh, or they're being sent off to war. It's hard for in industries to get workers at a good rate and it's hard for them to sell the things that they need to the people who are, are remaining. But you know one industry that is doing great during this time? There's one industry that is thriving during this pandemic. The cheesecloth industry. The American healthcare industry. <laughs> because this is the beginning of the really like industrialized American insurance and healthcare industry. Huh. And it is thriving during this time. In America and in many other countries as well, healthcare at this time is still primarily private. Uh, hospitals are also mostly private. So insur health insurance salesmen, they, they go around and be like, hey, Weird uh, virus, huh, from Spain. Do you want to buy some insurance in case you get sick? <laughs> you won't, obviously, because things are going weird. Do you want to buy some insurance? And then they'll sell, sell insurance for everything, that, but it doesn't cover the Spanish flu. Oh, no. <laughs> Something like that. Like, they will be like, it's a general health insurance, but not for the Spanish flu, because that's in Spain. It's far away. But people are getting sick, so that's weird. You should get health insurance. A lot of people going to hospitals, obviously, getting saddled with medical debt that they cannot afford. So at least in the very end from this... Uh, the healthcare industry is reporting record profits and some bureaucrat who like owns stock in various uh, hospitals that forces the poor to, to pay for basic healthcare during a pandemic, they made some money. So, you know, it's impossible to say whether or not this pandemic was bad or not. <laughs> Obviously, after this in the Second World War, uh, most countries who have sense decided to have a healthcare system that doesn't actually punish poor people, but there are still analogies to make here to America. <laughs> Where still a lot of people are being forced to pay exorbitant amounts uh, for their own basic healthcare during a pandemic. Yeah. That's the economy. So when discussing the public health response and the economy, we've made a lot of uh, comparisons to the modern pandemic. Yeah, I feel the like COVID. a running theme through this episode has been, whoa, it's so surreal how like it's so similar to what we see now. It's just like COVID. Uh, it's just like COVID. Um, and it's true. It's well, well, it's not. Okay, I'm not gonna say it's just like COVID, but let let's say let's put it this way: we're not the first ones who um, notice certain similarities between um, the Spanish flu and COVID. Mm -hmm. 
Um, there's definitely differences between between the two. Mm-hmm. So the first one, for example, would be that for the Spanish flu, it was young people who were most at risk, which is not something that we see with the COVID. Like, no. As we know, it's mostly elderly people who are yes. most at risk. I would say another really important difference is that, you know, back then, like I said, people didn't even know it was a virus. And it wasn't until like decades after yeah. that they could actually like see confirm the virus, confirm that it was a virus, see it under a microscope and way later um, actually sequence it and yeah. properly study it. They probably already sequenced COVID. Yeah. But oh, yeah. Like months ago. Month, like, you know, within the first month yeah. of, of um, the virus becoming um, widespread, they sequenced it. And it's it's honestly been so impressive how much of an organized effort the 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 study of the virus has been like mm. it's 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 been have, so like, cool big pandemic responses now we have like yeah overarching health organizations but it's been so cool to see you know i i i, uh, I i'm educated in biomedicine and so i was still working at a lab at my university when this whole thing started and i remember how cool it was to hear that all the virology labs in my university dropped everything that they were doing and started started working on on covid Mm. and i just think it's so impressive how how much of an organized effort we had in the face of covid which is not something that could be said about the spanish flu it would be hard to imagine how how covid would have impacted a time like them I mean, it is a different virus from the Spanish flu, but I'm also thinking, like, cause if the Spanish flu hit today, we would probably hit handle it a bit better yeah. than, than, than they did. Yeah, like, the sure. swine flu happened in, what, 2009? Yeah, which and, is a similar strain to the Spanish flu. And, and we did it, when they, we yeah. handled it fairly well. Um, yeah. I'm thinking COVID would probably have been rough. One thing that I managed to find during research about this, about the Spanish flu, was that in 2013... And I think this this isn't a direct comparison with COVID, but I think it's apt. Mm-hmm. In 2013, the AIR Worldwide Research and Modeling Group, they characterized the historic 1918 pandemic and they estimated, they did some calculations to see how a modern pandemic might affect the world as it is today. Mm-hmm. And this was obviously before COVID. So mm-hmm. now we have the real world experience <laughs> and also this model. Now we got the, the free trial. The, oh my God. And this and this uh, institute, this group, they estimated that a modern Spanish flu event mm-hmm. would uh, probably result in life insurance losses. They start with this first for some reason of approximately twenty billion dollars in the U.S. alone, with roughly one hundred and eighty-eight thousand to three hundred and thirty-seven thousand deaths in the United States. COVID is doing worse than this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just I just think it's interesting that, like, even though we have the data from the Spanish flu, and even though we've learned the lessons, and even though we've made models on a similar type of event, and people have predicted that probably a coronavirus will break out, mm-hmm. like, people knew that a coronavirus would break out, maybe not COVID. Where a, a, a viral pandemic would break yeah. out. Despite this, we're still... We're, we're still... We're very We're dropping the ball. Yeah. Because I'm just thinking, like, in with the similarities of the pandemic responses, when we talked about it being a very local thing, this is something I, I feel like we can see in America, mm-hmm. where, like, various states will have widely different responses to the pandemic. Yeah. Um, and even within Europe, like, a lot of European countries did lock down very hard. Many Scandinavian countries locked down fairly hard. And then Sweden just didn't get the memo. 
I'm I'm wondering if we do understand the gravity of the situation now of a pandemic like the Spanish flu, or if we're just still a bit incompetent or maybe a bit arrogant in our abilities. I think part of it is arrogance, but also we just don't want to see the line go down. You know, speaking about economy, I mean, this economy. is, this is, is, I mean, it's just the argument that you keep hearing over and over again. You gotta People, protect the economy. Even the fact that, you know, despite seeing how bad censoring, censorship was mm. for the pandemic back then, we still, today, yeah. you know, the United States has, we know that it's been um, hiding the real numbers. Yeah. Like uh, Trump has been like downplaying the severity of the virus for a long time. Yeah, and uh, Trump is not the, the only health one. administration took over the data from the CDC, right. and suddenly, and suddenly the infection numbers started dropping off. Yeah, even though deaths kept going, so fudging the numbers there probably. Yeah, and there are some criticism of China, for example, that they didn't like disclose the severity of the thing mm-hmm. of beforehand. So mm-hmm. that's censorship on like in their part for potentially sabotaging some some response early on. Yeah, exactly. It's unclear how much of that is true though, but that's because China doesn't really give out a lot of information to the rest of the world. Another like difference between this pandemic is probably how just the world existed like because mm-hmm. the the world at that time, the majority of travel that's going on then is the war, which is why the pandemic really yeah, took that's, its hold in that's Europe. That's how it really spread. Yeah, exactly. Whereas today, it's more travel-related, isn't it? Spread primarily by planes. People getting people are going on their planes and they're going to other countries and with the virus, they don't think they they don't know that they're sick and then they're spreading it. Yeah, and I wonder like whether I wonder whether uh, city density also has something to do with it. Probably, like cities today are way more dense than the, than they were back then, and also the virus is affecting like primarily like densely populated areas and countries, but also wealthy areas and countries mm-hmm. because there is a, because those are the people who travel a lot. Like I remember early on in, in the pandemic where people were the early outbreaks in Europe, they would be at ski lodges in, yeah. in the Alps and yeah. in, in Italy, tourist resorts, resorts really. Like that's where people would go and they would spread it around with their, with their other people there. So back then, like if you wanted to travel somewhere, you went on a boat. <laughs> If there hadn't been a war... And it wasn't your choice. <laughs> well, 1918. You can you can still travel by yeah. choice. Okay. Um, if you're a man. And, um, if you got money. If you got money. Now, it's so much easier to travel for more people. And like wealthy countries travel so much more than people traveled back in those days. So that's probably something that is helping this pandemic really spread. I'm actually considering this when we mentioned it earlier. That like if COVID existed then... And there wasn't a war, it probably wouldn't have spread. Mm-hmm. I'm also thinking, even with the Spanish flu, if there hadn't been a war on, it probably wouldn't have been a pandemic mm-hmm. because there wouldn't have been much travel. So the the world just looks more ripe for infection now than it used to do. I, I guess one thing to take away a dark thing really from the Spanish flu lesson is that we didn't really learn that much. How much do you think we're gonna learn from from this one? But I want to talk a bit about the legacy. How will we prepare for future pandemics if we don't even learn currently from our own pandemic? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of people now are aware of the Spanish flu. But just a few decades ago, it was almost entirely forgotten. Mm-hmm. Most people had no idea what the Spanish flu was. 
very, very quickly after the Spanish flu was, um, was dealt with, it became forgotten. Probably as a result of censorship. Uh, and the war takes up a lot of mental energy. Like, if you're going to remember one thing from 1918, it's going to be, like, the war. And people just don't want to remember times when things were awful. Yeah, you don't I... win a, you know You don't win a war against a pandemic. You just sort of, like, bleh. We are so good at coping mm. that we don't actually want to internalize our failures mm. as, a, as a society. And but, as we a also, but we also suck at, like, doing things now to prevent catastrophes later. Yeah. Climate change. Climate change. Future pandemics. Future pandemics. I mean, as soon as the vaccine comes out. Oh, it, people are going to forget this instantly. This ever happened. People want to go gonna, back to yeah. normal so bad. I don't... Yeah, like, I, I don't want to be cynical about it, but it just feels like people are very quick to forget yeah. the things that may happen. And I feel like the COVID pandemic is almost like... I don't want to say it's a good thing, but it's a, it's a very real reminder mm. of what the world might look like if we don't change the way we interact with nature yeah. and, you know, we don't change the way that society functions. There might be a little cause for hope there, because mm -hmm. after the 19 pan 1918 pandemic, a lot of countries did, like, they changed their healthcare systems to become more open to more people. They became, they were, starting off the welfare state began in some areas. It took, took a second world war to really kick things going, but hopefully we don't need two world wars to make us be, realize that maybe we should uh, change the way our world works. We're ending this episode as a sort of like summary on pandemics in general, and we've done some comparisons to COVID, but there's not like an end to this story because we're yeah. like in a we're in a pandemic right now. It's not over, and we're gonna have pandemics in the future almost right. guaranteed. So there's not a conclusion here. Yeah, it feels a bit unsatisfactory, and I really wish I could have like a you know a definite conclusion, yeah. some 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 words of like optimism yeah. to share with you or well, to to um well i'm guessing that that is the like masks are good masks are good wash your sure. hands we're hoping for a vaccine soon and i hope that you know there's this new strand of of covid mm -hmm. in in uh, the uk and also recently in uh, sweden mm -hmm. let's hope the well and the vaccine is supposed to still work yeah even against that strand let's hope it doesn't mutate further mm-hmm Hopefully vaccines are being rolled out well. Yeah. We'd, hopefully they're going to amp up production. Yeah. And I hope that everybody's... We hope that everybody's staying safe. Mm. We hope to be out of it soon. Wash um, your hands. Wash your hands. Stay at home if you can. I guess it won't be the last pandemic that we experience, but... Unfortunately, <sighs> unfortunately not. I, I, don't, I don't fully believe it, but let's hope that we learn something mm. from COVID. So that's our episode on the Spanish flu. Yeah. A long and A long and A long and It was a long episode. There's Longer than we thought it would be. I there... thought it would be a short episode. Yeah. I had a lot to say about it. Well, you knew, you knew a lot more about the science part of it than I thought was available. Because here I am, the historian, thinking, well, okay, well, it only lasted a few years. <laughs> and they didn't know that much about it. How much can it be? And then you go in talking about 2005 and stuff. Yeah. Which is outside of my wheelhouse so i apologize for not knowing about that but it's very interesting history about it though and it's interesting how how people dealt with it yeah and it's uh how did it go away though how did this pandemic stop yeah i mean it kind of just tapered off right like some people got immunity to it mm -hmm. other people died and then the rest were just kind of protected by herd immunity hmm so, so uh, it was over as quickly as it started. So basically the worst case scenario. Because like there's... It just kind of... 
um, infected its way through the world. Mm -hmm. Almost like COVID. Yeah, but the problem with COVID is that immunity is very low. Mm. But it's been a fun episode. Despite its dark and dystopian outlook on the future. Yeah, uh, for sure. The fact that we can't learn anything. And (sighs) millions of deaths and war. Stonks go down. Um, Health industry up though, so you know. Rich people got richer though. Some rich people got a lot richer. So thumbs up. Thumbs up. Um, Ever the optimist. (laughs) Right. But no, I had a lot of fun recording this and I hope that it was a fun episode to listen to. Yes. um, As well. If you like listening to this episode, you can actually, we have a Patreon now. Yeah, we do. And, uh, and we have some patrons. And we have some patrons, which we didn't think we would have. We didn't think we were going to have. And we were, we are so, thank you to everybody who is supporting this podcast we'll start shout outs and thanks after the end of your first month so yeah you have to actually be a patron for a month and then then rewards will start rolling out yeah but thank you to everyone who enjoys our podcast Mm -hmm. enough to support it really means a lot and it uh it tells us that you want us to keep doing it so that's great you can follow us on twitter on twitter.com slash leechfest podcast you we're on spotify on Spotify we're and... We're on rss.com. And we're, we've are we we've sent in our applications to be on Google Podcast and iTunes. Yeah. If we are on iTunes right now, rate us high. I think people still do that on iTunes. I don't know. I don't use Apple products. Neither. But we're on there maybe soon, so... That sounded so condescending. <laughs> I don't use I Apple products. I don't use products. Apple products. I, I only am... use Android. I don't buy into capitalism. <laughs> and then we all died from the Spanish flu. Well, if you like if you like our content, you can do that. Uh, do you have a social media profile that you want people to follow? Well, I do, because I'm a YouTuber full time. I do this as my side gig, because uh, it's fun. Uh, but my main stuff you can find on YouTube.com/slash/meamolder, or on Twitter.com/slash/potatopolitics. Go to meamolder.com. Um, and I'm on there. We also we should also soon have a website, leechfestpodcast. No, leechfest.com is what it's called. We own the domain. I got it. You can't have it. <laughs> I got it. Um, are we paying for it yet? Yes, we are. We're I paid for it. for it. We have paid for it. We don't have a website yet, but we do own the domain. Cool. So uh, if you're listening to this and you go to leechfest.com and you find something there, cool. There's probably nothing there yet, though. Once again, thanks for listening to our podcast. Stay safe. We still don't have an outro phrase. Stay safe. Wear a mask. Um, No, we need an outro phrase. This is is good banter. We'll keep keep this in the pocket. This is good banter. We'll find an outro phrase. One day, we'll find an outro phrase. One day. One day. I need to say that louder because I was super quiet last time. One day, we'll find an outro phrase. (sighs) One day, we'll find an outro phrase. We need to find an outro phrase. <laughs>